you've got a Bible today, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. We're going to try something new this week. Uh, I don't have enough time to get all the way through this chapter, I think, and do the points justice that are in it. And so uh, I'm going to work today through verse 13. That's roughly halfway, give or take. And then uh, tomorrow, when I'm in the office, I'm going to record just some audio. I'm going to speak about the genealogy, which begins in verse 14 and goes through the end, verse 30 of the chapter. Uh, It's a little more informational than it is necessarily congregationally relevant. And so for the sake of us not preaching Exodus until 2065, uh, we need to keep moving. And uh, we're really just getting to the good part, the beginning of the really good part. Uh, So just if you're already connected to our podcast stream, you know that we don't really have a podcast. We just do our sermon audio that way so you can keep up with it. Uh, You'll be getting a bonus episode probably Wednesday evening, Thursday morning, sometime in there. Uh, We'll also upload that audio to the website, truenorthalaska.com slash messages. And so you can check there. Check out uh, maybe Thursday, May 16th or so uh, and see see if you can find it and listen to it. I'm I'm shooting for 20, 25 minutes. That's going to be extra where I'm just going to try to unpack for you why a random genealogy is sort of injected into the middle of the rising action of this whole book. It's all narrative and then we just get a big family tree kind of for no reason it seems like, but there is. So anyway, I've already taken more time than I should have telling you that I don't have time to talk about that. So um, we're going to jump in. Last week, Moses went before Pharaoh for the very first time. He finally confronted him. All this preparation, this arguing with God, telling God, I, I can't do it, God. I, I can't speak the way I'm supposed to. You need to send somebody else. They're not going to believe me. And when he stands in front of Pharaoh, Pharaoh totally rejects Moses and totally rejects God. He says, I don't know who this Yahweh is. I don't, I've, I've heard of Set. I've heard of Anubis. I've heard of Ra. These are the gods of my people, but this Yahweh, I don't know, he must be a small God from a small place. So no, I'm not going to do what he wants. The Israelites belong to me. They don't belong to God. So Pharaoh rejects God's word. He gets angry, which of course he does. This has been the character of the Pharaohs since we began the book of Exodus. He gets angry and indignant that anybody would challenge his authority, and so he decides to make Israel's life worse, way worse. Uh, Josh did a good job of unpacking this last week, but having to create adobe bricks with no straw is almost impossible. And then building and working with those bricks, they're going to crumble, they're going to break apart. This is very bad news for people who basically get to live if they can do good work. Well, now their work is much harder. So in turn, God's people get very angry with Moses because they think that Moses messed this up for them. The signs and wonders that Moses and Aaron showed God's people at the conclusion of chapter 4 were encouraging. Everybody's worshiping God, they're praising his name for stooping low and loving them and meeting them where they are. Yet, very shortly after that, one maybe mistake, if you will, God doesn't make mistakes, but it seems like he's not doing what he said he would do to his people. They freak out. They're mad. They tell Moses, you've made our lives miserable. Why would you do this to us? And so then, in turn, Moses, with very hurt feelings, speaks to God at the conclusion of chapter 5, and I just want to read it to you. I want to I remind us of what's going on, because chapter 6 today is God's response, so we need to know what he's responding to. He says this, Moses says, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Because he sees that God's people being crushed by this additional burden on top of their slavery. Why did you ever send me? For ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And then here comes this wild accusation against God. And you have not delivered your people at all. At all. Ooh, that's big. That's, That's hurt feelings speaking, if you can't hear that. Um, maybe you remember what it feels like to be broken up with in your, in your dating history, okay? For me, thankfully, it's been about seven and a half, eight years since that's happened. I don't think I'm ever going to deal with that again, God willing, if he keeps his promise to me and my wife. 
maybe for some of you guys, you don't have to reach back that far. It could have been last week, so sorry if this stings a little bit. But I remember the last time that I got broken up with, uh, I was dating this girl. She sent me a text, and we met. At, we both went to this small Christian college, and we met outside on the sidewalk, and I thought maybe we're going to watch the sunset, or we're just going to take a walk, whatever, very cheesy. And she basically just unloaded on me. We'd been on two dates, and she was like, she played all the cards that you play when you don't want to be the bad guy, but you need to break up with somebody. She was like, it's not you, it's me, uh, which wasn't true. It was definitely me. And, and also, I just, she said, she played the God card. I just don't think God really wants me to date anybody right now, is what she said to me. I guess God changed his mind, because she went out with another guy like four days later. But <laughs> God's sovereign, right? Whatever, I don't know. I'll just do what he wants. It worked out for me, so I'm not too mad. But when she said that to me, it hurt my feelings. I was mad at her. I didn't want her to say that. It didn't feel good to me. And so I did what everybody does when they get broken up with. I try to kind of clap back at her a little bit. You know what I'm saying? You've had these thoughts. You try to be nice to this person you're dating. And then in the moment where they sort of lay it all out and betray you, you got to get that parting shot in. And so I'm paraphrasing here, but I think I said something like, well, I don't think you're that mature for your age. Uh, and I think it's not good that you drive home to see your parents every weekend. I think you should be independent. And then I kind of walked away like, like mic drop. There you go. Take that. <laughs> I'm not saying that was good or right. I'm not trying, this is not prescriptive, okay? I'm not giving you a sermon on how to break up peacefully. What I'm telling you is, as human beings, we like to take a parting shot. Our brother Moses felt like God broke up with him when Pharaoh increased the burden of slavery on God's people. That's what it felt like to him. He was like, we were in this thing together. If you think about it, God has had to woo Moses. It's not romantic, but there are some similar hallmarks to what it feels like to be in in an early young relationship. God is calling Moses out. He's inviting him into something. He's saying, trust me, believe my words. I know that you haven't gotten to see me do these things this much, but if you'll just stay with me, I'll be faithful to you. I'll do what I told you. And I I hear in Moses' voice, I hear him yelling at God, I should have known better. When he says, why did you send me, I don't think that's rhetorical. I think he really wants to understand, like, are you just messing with me, God? Is this punishment because I left Egypt a long time ago? I mean, Moses remembers. Remember where we were two weeks ago? He remembers laying on the ground outside, camping with his wife, about to die, while his wife has to make this desperate sacrifice to God to make peace through the blood of her son. And now he's like, what was it for, God? You're just like, I mean, it's like the way we feel when somebody breaks up with us. You're just like all the other girls. I've heard all this before. Moses is saying to God, you're like all the other gods. You're not going to do any of the stuff that you promised to me. And when he says these things to God, my expectation, based on the God that I see in the Bible, is that God is going to sort of have words with him. You remember the story of Job. Job spends a lot of time questioning God, not accusing God of evil, but wondering why God would do things the way that he does. And God appears, and he really puts Job in his place. He answers his questions in a way that's a little bit aggressive. And says, like, I got some questions for you. Were you there when I made the earth? Were you there when I built everything? When I made all the animals and hung the clouds in the sky and the moon and the stars? And Job is just, like, quiet. He's like, no, I wasn't there, and I probably shouldn't have said these things. God's approach, his tone, his attitude to Moses, and by extension to Israel in this chapter, very different. And as we walk through this, what I think you're going to see is what's happening in the life of Israel, what's happening in Moses' life, is incredibly relevant to what is going on in Christian culture in the world that we live in right now. So let's look to the Bible. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is God's response to Moses. Moses says, the last words out of his mouth are, you haven't saved your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them. Who is them? The Israelite people. He will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. 
God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham. I appeared to Isaac. I appeared to Jacob. And I came to them as God Almighty. If you're not using a scripture journal, your Bible probably has a note there that in Hebrew it's El Shaddai, which is a title that God uses. It's a God who is almighty, who is, a, who is strong. He says, I came to them as an almighty God. That's how I introduced myself to them, was that I was a strong God. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Verses 1 through 4, God is looking back. He's reminding Moses of what he's done. He's reintroducing his character, and he specifically uses his name to try to be personal with Moses and calm him down. So here's your first point if you're taking notes today. God is tender when we resent him. God is tender when we resent him. Moses and Israel should not have been surprised when Pharaoh rejected God's word because God told Moses he was going to do that. He said to Moses right before Moses left Moab to go back to Egypt, he pulled him aside for just one last little powwow and he said, when you get there, Pharaoh's heart will be hard and as a result of that, he's not going to listen to anything that you say. He's going to reject you. He's going to send you out. He'll probably belittle you. This isn't going to go the way that you're expecting it to. Now that seems like it's antithetical to God telling Moses that Pharaoh will set his people free. Why does God keep repeating these two ideas over and over again? He continues to tell Moses and God's people, Pharaoh's heart will be hard, he won't let you go. Then the next breath he'll say, Pharaoh is going to let you go. In fact, he's going to want you gone so bad he will drive you out. He will think that it's his idea where you'll be, you'll be such a problem to him he'll want you gone. The reason that God has to repeat those two things over and over and over again is we think that they're opposites. We, we think we have to pick one. And we get confused when we read this. The most common question I get from anybody when we talk about Exodus is, did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? The answer is yes. When we get to chapter 7 next week, we're going to dig further down into that. I'm going to try to give you a more nuanced answer. But these are not antithetical opposite things. Both will happen, and they will actually happen back and forth. Pharaoh will change his mind and say, yes, I'm going to let you go. But then he'll go, no, actually, wait, only some of you can go. And then his life will get hard again because God will continue to put pressure on him via the plagues. And Pharaoh will say, okay, yes, you can go. And then he'll pull back. That's a confusing experience. All God is doing is preparing his people for what's going to happen, exactly what's going to happen. He's telling them it's going to feel weird. You're not going to know. You're going to kind of get jerked back and forth. And then eventually, finally, there is hope coming for you. But if Moses and Israel were paying attention to what God said, not just the way that God made them feel, they would remember that this is right in the middle of God's plan. Pharaoh's rejection is something God saw coming. He anticipated. He knew it would happen. He warned his people. But I don't think that matters to them because Moses feels betrayed. Israel feels betrayed by God. They felt that God sent them a text, like that girl I was dating sent me a text and said, hey, can we meet up for a second? I need to talk to you. And then in the middle of that, he just dropped a bomb on them they didn't see coming because he didn't deliver them overnight. That's what they expected. So they're mad. That's why Moses lashes out at God. But in God's response, his tone is calm. and He is compassionate to Moses. He's understanding. I think there are lessons here for parents all over how God interacts with Moses in this book. But specifically, I would ask you, do you see God at any point in the four verses that we read today? Does he attack Moses because Moses doesn't believe? Does he belittle Moses because he thinks Moses should know better by now? No, not at all. He doesn't tell Moses that he has to believe or else or that there will be some kind of consequence. He says, okay, you're going to see this. That's what he says in verse 1. You shall now see what Pharaoh will do. I'm not just speaking to you about what's possible, which God knows is going to happen, but Moses thinks it's maybe a possibility. 
God is saying, you're going to see this happen now. And he's not even saying that in a condescending tone. He's not saying, oh, you're going to see. I'll show you. He's going, that's fine. Be weak. Be weak. You don't know what to do? That's okay. Don't know what to do. You just sit down and watch me. And I'm going to do all the things that I told you I was going to do. I want to point something out to you. Look at verse 2 again. God says, I am the Lord. In your Bible, the word Lord is all capital letters, except the O, the R, and the D are smaller than the L. You've probably seen this before. If you've read through the Bible in a year or you've spent much time in the church, you've seen this. And you probably wondered what it means. Well, I'm going to tell you today. Uh, that is, that word that we translate as Lord, is a word in Hebrew that we call, huge word incoming, you ready? The Tetragrammaton which sounds like a made-up magic book, but it's not. It means there's four letters and there's a word that comes out of those things, the tetragrammaton. Why does this matter to you? In chapter 3 of Exodus, when God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, for the very first time in the Bible, he uses his own name. He does not communicate his title. He does not communicate his office. He doesn't communicate his ability. He uses his own name. Maybe you don't know that God has a name. God communicates that name to Moses and then we just read it in verse 3 of chapter 6. God emphasizes that Moses is the first person to whom God has given this personal name. And that that matters. That when God came to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, the people who received this, this early covenant that now is kind of guiding God's hand as he works in the land of Egypt, that they heard that God was El Shaddai. They had known him as Elohim or Adonai. That there were these titles that he was a deliverer, that he was strong, that he is the God of armies. But when God gets down on his knees to speak to angry Moses. I mean, I see this child, Moses, just beating his fists against God's chest while God holds him close. And God says to Moses, remember who I am? It's me, Moses. It's Yahweh. That's how we say that. Now, we don't know God's name exactly, and this is a little bit complicated. This is why we need more time today. We're going to go down the rabbit hole a little bit here. But we don't actually know what the Tetragrammaton is because we've lost that to history. I'm serious. Nobody knows how to say this. What's interesting is that that was on purpose. So if you were to go back to probably right after Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible down when he put them into writing, uh, there was already a history of people passing down God's word, God's stories orally. There are these moments, we see them in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where God will tell his people, set up a pile of rocks or burn a dead animal or stick a big post in the ground. And when you walk by these things, your children will ask you, why is there a pile of rocks? Why are there animal bones here? Why is there a post in the ground? And you will say to them some story, some example of what God did. That was the oral history of God's people before there was a written language for them. And so there's already this rich history of people speaking these things, of children growing up in the rabbinic tradition and needing to memorize way more than you and I think that we possibly can. And so by the time that the Old Testament is written down, in Hebrew, there are no vowels to write. That's, you're thinking, oh, yeah, there are. No, there's not. If you read Hebrew, if a native Hebrew speaker reads Hebrew, you read it right to left, and it's just consonants. There's no spaces, there's no punctuation, there's no capital letters, there's no indication of where these words begin and end. Now, why is that? That's because Hebrew people aren't actually reading. They're just using that as a visual reference point. It's the same way that you may have seen people who want to memorize Scripture. They'll write down the first letter of each word in a passage on their arm or their hand, or they're, they're, they'll carry it on a card. They're not actually trying to memorize those letters in that order. That's just a reference point for them. That's how well these people knew the stories of God, verbatim as they had happened. So there becomes this thing, a guy dies in maybe 1200 BC, and when he dies, the Jewish people decide that they're no longer going to use the name of God. They won't say it out loud, and they won't write it down. 
This goes so far that today, in a very few Christian traditions and most Jewish traditions, if they were to write God, G-O-D in English, they would leave the O out. G-D. You might have a friend on Facebook that does this and you've wondered, what is that about? That is an attempt to be reverent. That's an attempt to say to God, your name is so holy, it's so high and lifted up that these lips won't even speak it. Which is something that we learn from the Old Testament. God's prophets speak that way. At the end of this chapter, Moses will say, I'm a man of uncircumcised, unclean lips. So it's a good and right posture, but it's really inconvenient to you and I because we'd like to know what God's name is. So we have the Tetragrammaton, and it is these four letters. Y, H, W, H. And we don't know what vowels are supposed to go in between those consonants. So what happened, if you fast forward from Moses writing down the first five books of the Bible to the first English translation of the Bible, around the time that the printing press comes into play, people, English-speaking people, have to come up with something to do with this. They can't just write YHWH, -W -Y -H -W -H, they don't think, so they have to try to find a word that fits there. So what they do is they take the word Adonai, a Hebrew word that we know, they pull the vowels out of Adonai, I know this is crazy, they stick those vowels in between the letters, Y-H-W-H, -H, and they form the word Yahweh. Or if you are an old English speaker, you would say Yehovah, Jehovah, which is a name that you've heard for God before. Now in modern translations, we think that Yahweh, Jehovah, is actually probably a little bit farther away from the meaning of the Tetragrammaton, and so we just go back to the word Adonai. But we write it in all capital letters so that you know that it's supposed to be God's name. Now why does that matter to you? You're thinking, it doesn't, and I wish I would have stayed home today. It does matter to you. Do you know why? Because it is incredibly, unprecedentedly personal for God to give us his own name. I'll just use me as an example in your life, okay? I, for a lot of you, hold some kind of significance. This is one of the funny things about being a pastor, is we know that we're just people, but sometimes when we enter the room, people, we're kind of like a priest. People feel like we just bring the presence of God with us. Like a lot of times when I visit people at the hospital, this is their experience. I just stand in the corner while they cry and pray and ask God to heal them, but they just feel that God came with me, okay? So I hold an office in your lives, is what I'm saying. I preach. You hear my voice probably a lot more than other people in the church. I have some authority in my home. I'm a husband. I'm a father. These are things I do. These are offices I hold. And it's fair for people to whom I am a husband and a father to have expectations of me because of that. But when you get to know Philip, that's different. Totally different. That means that there's a person underneath those offices. There's a person with thoughts and ideas and wants and pain and loss and weaknesses. God doesn't have pain and loss and weaknesses. I think he feels pain when he grieves the sin of his people, but th there is a sense of personal to this. It's very, very meaningful. God doesn't come at Moses with a solution. Do you, do you understand this, church? He's not saying to Moses in his moment of weakness, you should know better than that. We don't talk like that in here. He's not quoting his own scriptures at Moses. He's not trying to prove Moses wrong. He's not belittling him. He doesn't disqualify him. He doesn't replace him. He says to him, if we can read it the way that it's written, I am Yahweh. I'm not these other gods. It's me, Moses. And I am for you. I love you. Moses at his most emotional, his most vulnerable, yelling at God, why? Why have you done this to us? What are you thinking? Is there any meaning in any of this suffering? And God says to him tenderly, yeah, there's meaning in it, because I'm me, Moses. We're, I'm still here. You haven't lost the most important thing in your life. You aren't without answers. You're not without a future. I do have peace for you. I'm here. I'm here. And I've given you guys some things to believe, but if you can't, I'm going to do it anyway. 
I will act. I will do these things. You will see the way that the Pharaoh responds because God is tender when we resent him. If you think about it, I love the irony of this. God's name, Yahweh, is actually the least useful of any of the names that he could have given. I think probably in our experience as New Testament believers that there are moments where we want God to do a thing or be a certain way, and instead he comes to us personally. This happens to Jesus over and over again. People demand a sign from him. They demand a miracle from him. When he's on the cross, his weakest, his most vulnerable, his most personal moment of doing whatever it takes to reunify us with God the Father, people are screaming at him, if you really are who you say you are, then come down off that cross. If you really do command angels, then where are they? Well, God is making the most intimate, personal self-introduction in history by dying publicly in front of all these people who've rejected him. But it is the most useful name of God in the sense that it shows compassion. That God is able to connect with a person who is in mourning, really, who fears that he's gambled his life away on this God who doesn't intend to do any of the things that he promised. God could have reminded Moses and Israel what he was capable of, but instead he makes himself known personally. He sits with Moses in the pain. And God hasn't changed from that God. God is tender with us when we resent him. And we do, don't we? Can we be honest with each other? Don't we resent God sometimes? We doubt him. Especially on a day like today, where there's a lot of strings attached to our culture kind of just being happy all the time. And we look around us and go, I've lost the things or I don't have the things that would qualify me to celebrate a day like today. But we hide that stuff, man. We try to bury it. We fear. We are so scared of what would happen if other Christians knew that we had real problems. But God knows. And the good news is, regardless of what any Christian does in his name, good, bad, or ugly, God is tender. He is warm. He is kind to you and I. We shout at him if we're honest. Why me? You haven't done anything that you promised, God. I kept all your rules. I memorized the scripture. Where's my mom today? Why am I not a mom today? God, why these other people and not me? We feel that. That is, that is just one example, but we carry these kinds of things. And if we are not careful, we will turn our backs and we will walk away. And that's what Israel did. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. God continues responding to Moses, and he says this, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So, Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then this is personal. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know, you shall know, which is the very thing that they cannot do right now. They cannot believe this. They do not know it. It is not true in their minds and hearts. He says, you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, the God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then I will. I will keep my covenant. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I will give it to you, and you will possess it. It will be yours. I am Yahweh. He keeps using his name. And then Moses does what he's told. Moses spoke these things to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Second point for you today. God is near to us in our deconstruction. 
You guys ever heard of Joshua Harris? Anybody grow up in youth group? Yeah? Yeah, yeah, late 90s, early 2000s? Okay. Joshua Harris wrote two books that impacted my life. When I was 16, I would have told you that they impacted my life positively. Today, I would say that they actually impacted it negatively. Things have changed, okay? The first book that he wrote is called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. The second book is called Boy Meets Girl. And both books speak strongly against traditional dating. And they were major cultural touch points in the late 90s through the 2000s and 10s, okay? And I can't, just a side note to you, I can't properly tear down purity culture in youth groups today. I wish I had time to do that. We'll do that another day. But I'll say this to you. Joshua was a huge name in conservative teenage circles. Huge name. In 2004, Joshua got his dream job. He got to be a pastor at a mega church. Huge church that's part of this big church planning network where he's traveling and he's speaking and he's being a pastor and a preacher to thousands of people. And then, abruptly, in July of 2019, Joshua abruptly divorced his wife and he renounced his faith. And this is what he said when he did that. He did it via an Instagram post, right? Of course he did. This is what he said. He said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Then, about a year later, in February of 2020, two very popular YouTube personalities and podcasters, Rhett McLaughlin and Link Neal. You guys may know Good Mythical Morning or the Ear Biscuits podcast. It's these guys. They used to be a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. They came out in February 2020 that they had deconstructed across the last five years and could no longer call themselves followers of Christ or Christians. They each did an hour-long podcast episode walking their listeners through that deconstruction process. And many others have followed after them. I won't use his name, but the adult son of one of America's most influential conservative pastors now has almost a million TikTok followers because every day he deconstructs publicly. He walks them through verbally all of his beef with Christianity, and especially Christians, which, let's be honest, probably has a point there. But he tries to pick it apart such that he can help build this community of people that are primarily online that we now know as ex-evangelicals. So I'm throwing some terminology at you today. I'm assuming you've been near enough to this stuff that you've seen it, but if you haven't, you need to know. And you know me, so we're not going to just pick on these people and pick on culture, but I think this is incredibly relevant to the moment that we live in. If you have any hope of seeing a person age 30 or younger continue to follow Christ until they die of old age, you need to understand what is going on with postmodern thought in Christianity. Okay, so we have the ex-evangelicals that have found one another, that are deeply offended at the church and Christianity. And this is a subset of people now. They've abandoned historical Orthodox faith. They've built this online community. And there's just two things I want to say, and then I'm going to point you back to verse 9, because I think this is what's going on in the life of Israel. First, okay, this deconstruction thing is going to keep happening. So if you don't know about it, you need to hop on the internet probably this afternoon and just do a little bit of reading, or I'll meet with you and tell you my perspective. Another elder can do the same. But this is big, and this is happening, and there is a cultural turning point, okay? We're at it. If you don't know this... For about 150 years, most of the lifespan of the United States of America, we have had what is known as Christendom. Christendom has existed at times in the Middle East. It's existed throughout Europe at different points. Christendom is when the government and popular thought embraces the principles of Christianity. Christendom means that there is some kind of positive cultural aspect, social aspect, to sitting in church. That ended in these United States in 2010. If you don't know that, you need to know that. That is why... Some of us are experiencing culture shock in our 50s and 60s because the cultural, national perspective on our faith is totally different from what it used to be. 
and what it was for generations in a row. There have been resistances at different points. There have been movements that have pushed back against Judeo-Christian values, conservative perspectives on things. But it's wholesale now. Now, what I want you to understand is this is not actually a reason for you to panic at all. There's no culture war to be fought and won. When we start picking on culture, we lose automatically as Christians. What we're called to do is love individual people and love each other. Jesus says that's the thing that will actually lead people to him. Is people will look at the church and go, there's a thing going on there I can't find anywhere else. Unfortunately, not true a lot of places, but I think God is doing some stuff in the lives of church leaders right now to make this change. But as that culture shift happens, what I want you to see is that you will, if you have not already, at some point probably watch someone you love abandon their faith in Jesus. So that's the first thing I want to say about deconstruction. Second, deconstruction, I believe, is actually healthy to some degree. What we call deconstruction, what we mean when we use that phrase, is really the coming out process. The deconstruction itself happens across five or ten years way beforehand, and once all those things have cooked internally and those fears of what might happen if I walk away from this Christianity I never really believed in in the first place, once all that settles... Then we, we say we've deconstructed, but we're really talking about a thing that already happened. So if when we say deconstruction, what we mean is that we're finally honest, that we don't really care for God, we don't believe the Bible, and we think the church is a hoax, I think it's actually better that we be honest about that. I think if that's your perspective, say that. It doesn't hurt my feelings. It makes me deeply sad for you, but I think we might actually finally be able to have a fruitful conversation. But if all you're doing is listening to other people argue with things you don't even believe— you're never going to change. You're not going to find Jesus by way of somebody else's convincing argument. You're going to find him personally. That's how everybody in history has ever found him. So what I want you to hear me say, church, is sometimes, and this is unfortunately true in the West, probably more than other places, but people actually have to walk away from Christians and the church to find Jesus. And that can be a fruitful result that can come from deconstruction. Following Jesus has never been about good behavior. Following Jesus has never been about knowing the right answers or, or see if this stings anybody in the room today, begrudgingly singing songs that you don't believe while you sit in a room you don't want to be in next to people who don't really know you. Is that your Christianity? Because let's all just agree that that ought to be torn down. That ought to be dis discarded. The real you, if the real you has problems with God, then God would actually welcome those questions. God would welcome those issues. God has never asked for blind faith. Faith is what happens when we encounter God and then we have to embrace some things that we just can't process because we're not on the same intellectual plane as him. That's what faith is. Faith isn't blind. And God is willing to make himself known to people. And so we have to trust that even though this is going to keep happening and that sometimes it's good and right for people who don't love Jesus to actually stop acting like they do, that there is a, there's still a solution under the surface of this. So just look back at verse 9 with me if you would, just quickly. Two things about Israel that are true about anybody who walks away from their faith. Just hear this. They did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and because of harsh slavery. So they themselves are broken, which is a real thing that we need to be able to acknowledge happens in the lives of most people. And second, their circumstances are so horrifying that they just don't have enough left in the gas tank to believe a thing that they can't see in front of their face. These are not people who have decided to be atheists because it's cool. These are not people who went to one Richard Dawkins talk one time and went, okay, that's all I needed to hear. I'm done. I'm done with my faith. These are people who have had such a horrifying life experience that they can't hold up the happy-go-lucky Christianity that they saw in Sunday school as a kid with their world. 
And I can't either. I couldn't when I was in college. I abandoned my faith for a season. I was studying to be a Christian leader. That's the name of the degree I got in college. And I could not hold up all these things people had said about God against my experience, my reality. I had major questions about how God could allow horrible things to happen to good people. What do we do with the Holocaust? What do you do with gas chambers invented by some of the most brilliant people in the world to be the most efficient way of ending human life? Where's God in any of those things? These are real questions I had. What about evil? What, what is Satan? Why would God even allow something like that to be made? Why the blood sacrifice? Why all the war? Why the slavery in the Old Testament? Why does the church have such crazy ideas that aren't in the Bible? These were challenging things to me. And I got answers to those things. And if those are real questions you have, let's get coffee and I'll answer them for you. I don't have time to get into it today, but I'll tell you that this was the turning point for me, is it wasn't any one of those intellectual things I could write out that helped explain away the thing that I was worried about. I met Jesus, and I didn't meet him at church. I didn't meet him at an altar call. I didn't follow somebody else in a prayer at Vacation Bible School. Okay, that's going to work for some people sometimes, but there's a whole lot of people who aren't going to even come into a room where that's going on. So what you need to understand is, as we deconstruct maybe what we're really doing is being honest about where we are and maybe that position of honesty is a lot more fertile ground than us hiding behind nice things at church maybe god can do a lot more with a person who's honest about not being ready than he can with somebody who's learned to fake it so well that they're inoculated against the gospel this is the deconstruction story of every ex-evangelical exodus chapter 6 verse 9 I have lived a miserable life, and I just can't believe that this is true. When we start to admit what has been true for a long time in our own lives, when we confess that we don't necessarily believe it all, I think we're taking steps closer to God, not away. I think God actually has a plan for those who are deconstructing. I don't want to belittle the movement. I don't want to belittle that there are people who maybe really have abandoned genuine faith permanently, but I want to say to you that it wouldn't surprise me if 20 years from now there is a new kind of church that's more built on Scripture and more about what God actually said that's full of people who walked away from their faith for about 15 years. I think that's coming. I'm expecting that. It's unfortunate that we have to have this break in this chain, back to orthodoxy, thousands of years of people trying their best, but I think that the church has drifted so far culturally that maybe we have to do this. Maybe we need something to actually shatter so we can start over and do it right. I don't want that to be true. Okay, at True North, we're trying to work against that. We want to be in partnership with other churches. We want to get to know churches that have older congregations. We want to find ways to do mutually beneficial ministry. Us even being in this building is representative of folks that are generations removed from most of us being gracious and kind and willing to partner with us. So it's not all bad everywhere. But broad strokes, something is going on where people are reading their Bible and going, this doesn't look like following Jesus. There was a very interesting article a couple of weeks ago in which a, a large evangelical leader was finally honest about this. And he said, what is driving people, what is driving young people out of our churches is not that they don't believe what Jesus says, it's that they don't think we believe what Jesus says. And they're not going to be party to that anymore. They're not going to just sit by and, and take that, the paint job of their parents and their grandparents. They're going to go, why don't we do the stuff that we say we're supposed to do? Why do we sit in a room like this for 40 minutes every week while a guy like me shouts at us about how different our lives are supposed to be, and then by Tuesday we don't remember any of it? It doesn't matter at all. Is this really what Jesus died for? And I think the answer is no. And so what I want you to see is that God has a plan in our deconstruction and that he is near to us. He is near to all of those who try to walk away from him. 
He stays close to us. We know this from Scripture, don't we? What does he do when Job cries out to him? He comes to Job. He sits with Job. He hears Job out. What does he do when Jacob is running from God as an adult man at this turning point in his life where he's left every part of the faith that his father raised him in, yet he knows full well that he's still called by God and he hates that about himself. He wants to be anywhere but in God's will. God comes to him and they actually physically wrestle. That's not allegory. God gets down on the mat with him and he goes, let's do this then. I'm not scared of you. I'm not worried about what's going to happen if you start following the wrong YouTube channel. Let's figure this out. And he humbles Jacob and he gives his life to God. He's transformed forever. God still does that. He did it to me. He will do it to anybody who walks away from their faith. He can. He can. It's the same thing that he did for Moses in Moab. For 40 years, Moses had thought he was done with all that God stuff. For 40 years. He was an 80-year-old man. And God came to him and transformed his life. And he still doubts. He's still worried. He's still not sure. And God is compassionate. God is close to him. God is near to him. Maybe you haven't thought about this before. I want to push you briefly to the New Testament. John chapter 2, Jesus actually included a kind of religious deconstruction in his own plan. That he was going to reconcile all things to himself and that that would happen by way of the deconstruction, the end of the old covenant, the old religious system. This is the thing that got Jesus put on the cross. As he told people, their empty religion wasn't going to get them anywhere. And that was so deeply threatening to them, they murdered him. John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said to him, the wrong answer, they said, but it has taken 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And right there, church, in verse 20 is the mistake that we all make when somebody we love turns their back on God. We challenge Jesus' ability to rebuild. We don't think he can. That's why it scares us. We think it's going to be permanent and final and we don't trust him. We read the Facebook post of our 25-year-old son renouncing his faith, and when God says to us, he comes to us to comfort us, and he says, I can rebuild that. We turn to God and we go, but it took us 25 years. How can you do that? We, We spent all of our time building this. We gave everything to it. You can't do that. When our spouse confesses that they aren't convinced anymore, we panic and we try to convince them. We get angry, we shame them, we attack their integrity, we belittle the intellectual journeys of those who deconstruct instead of just staying close to them, just being near and waiting for God to act. When somebody we love attempts to distance themselves from Jesus, we should stay as close as we can to them. To tie you back to the vision of this church, this is how we respond to deconstruction as part of how we shape our community with hope. This is a shaping movement in our lives. That we do a thing nobody expects because Jesus loves us. We follow God's example in Exodus 6 and we patiently and quietly stay nearby. We continue to love, though it is excruciatingly painful to us. We listen well. We listen more than we speak. Is that true of anybody in your life who's rejected Christianity? Do you listen to them more than you speak to them? Are you present in their life at all or do you just come in for a bombing run of scripture once in a while? You're laughing. That is a miserable experience. I don't think you know the position that you put real human beings, souls made in God's image in when they can't get to you through this wall of like rightness, not righteousness, being right. We have been made one with God and God does not lambast us. God does not attack us. When Jesus begins to call that soul back to him, which is a prayer we will pray every day for the people who've walked away from him, 
You want to be ready. You want to be right there, right there, waiting, present the whole time. Never shaming, never belittling, never attacking, ready to speak, ready to give an answer for the faith that we have, but not looking for a chance to start an argument so that we can give that answer. Do you see the difference? Ready to forgive, ready to ask for forgiveness, ready to reconcile. This is what God is doing with his people. They are too broken right now, but they won't stay that way. And through 10 plagues, 17 times, God will send Moses to Pharaoh to to argue and fight for his people's freedom. And that entire time, a year of their life goes by during these 10 plagues. And still they are broken. Still they don't believe. Still they don't rejoice. Finally, as an act of desperation, at the end of the 10th plague, some of them put blood over their doors, thinking that maybe that will help protect them from the angel of death. But it is not until they are on their way out that God gives them the Passover. Why does God give people a sign like the Passover? Why does he make them do it every year? Because it doesn't feel real to them. These are not hyper-religious, super-happy people. They are broken by their circumstances, and God is giving them things that are supposed to restore life. Is that the role that you are playing in the lives of people around you who don't know Jesus? Are you giving them life, or are you condemning the death in them? Because they probably, with the exception of a few people that are pretty extreme, they probably know that they're dead. They can sense that. They're doing everything in their power to find life somewhere, and maybe you're being a gatekeeper to that. Maybe you're keeping them at arm's length because them looking for life doesn't feel the way that you think it should. Here's what God does. Look at verse 10. God said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moses, so go in, speak to Pharaoh again, and tell him to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And Moses argues, because of course he does. Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. If they won't listen, how then shall Pharaoh listen? Because I'm of uncircumcised, I'm of unclean lips. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, He spoke to them. He gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Last point for you today. God is not convincing. He is evident. God moves his attention to Pharaoh. At last, God will begin to apply pressure by way of the plagues. He will send Moses to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will finally relent. And along the way, God does not negotiate with his people. The broken spirits they have are the same broken spirits they'll bring into the desert when they're finally set free. Moses has nothing to say that can change their hearts. Moses is not a gifted apologist. He's not a gifted evangelist. He's not a gifted philosopher. And church, I'll tell you what God didn't do that we're often tempted to do when there are people in our lives who are rejecting Christianity. God didn't send a bunch of sermon links by Tim Keller and John Piper and Matt Chandler. Okay? He didn't text a blog post once in a while and go, hey, I don't know what you're doing today, but this would really be worth your time. God sent Moses. God also didn't corner his wayward children at Thanksgiving and berate them for being worldly. He didn't find a moment where they were vulnerable and attack them even harder. He worked for their good and he worked for their freedom while they were still wandering and while they were still doubting. While they were trying to be far from him, he was working to be near to them personally. God did not disown them. He did not refuse to acknowledge them. He did not give them the silent treatment. He sent Moses to remind them that they still belong to him, that he still sees them, and that he is listening, that he does have a plan. And you have a chance to be that Moses. That is the role that you play in the life of a person who is walking away from God. You represent him. Do you know what he's like? Can you do that? I don't know. You need to know him personally first. You need to be near to him every day. You need to be a person like Moses who's been in God's presence such that when you are around people, they see a reflection of the glory of God. 
doesn't mean you're overbearing or powerful. It means that you are peaceful and kind, that you made yourself lowly because you have nothing to lose anymore. God's given you everything you could want. While Israel is doubting, God is at work. He's not trying to convince them of anything. He's just making himself known. He's just evident. He's there. He's present. This is what he will do in the lives of people who've walked away. While Israel is testing and trying out the idols of Egypt, God is methodically dismantling those idols. That's why there are ten plagues. Each of those plagues attacks a god of Egypt and debunks the myth that that god has any power that Yahweh doesn't have. While Israel criticizes God from a distance, God sustains them from within. And God still makes himself known. So do you believe that? I don't know if you do. Sometimes I don't, if I can be honest with you. Sometimes I think the full weight and responsibility of other people's conversion falls on me. And I can't swing all the way the other way. I'm not saying I don't participate in that at all. But I'm telling you, God, the Spirit of God, is the one who sparks that. That's what the Bible says. He's the one who brings dead people to life, not you and me. There's no amount of gifting, training, or equipping that can happen where we can take God's place. What gifting, training, and equipping do is unify us with God so that we can see him, so we know what he's doing, so we can be a part of his kingdom. So do you trust Jesus to be able to break in and show himself? Is God really with us or not? Is God's spirit in us or is he not? Because Moses, like us, is not a gifted master communicator. He's much more like us than we may want to admit. He's a stuttering, nervous, anxious servant of God. And I want you to hear this if you didn't hear anything else that I said today to you. As God works in the lives of those who have walked away, we should expect him. We should expect him and be anticipating that he will send us to them in the meantime, like he sent Moses. We are who God sends to the culture to speak, to be salt and light to them. We are who God sends to sit with the disenchanted, the doubting, and the deconstructing. And this is my prayer, that we will sit patiently, that we will pray aggressively, and that we will love endlessly, that our love will abound more and more as Jesus constructs new life in those who have deconstructed their faith. Let me pray for you. Father, I confess on our behalf that we're not good at this. I don't know what it was like a thousand years ago, but today in these United States, God, we typically are a generation behind what our culture needs from us. We wait and we fight. We're defensive first. We're negative first. We're criticizing first. And only once we've been broken, then maybe we repent. Then maybe some of us cry out and reach out to the lost. So in repentance, we ask that you make that different, God. It's been a long time since there was legitimate revival in this country. A long time. I don't even know if we know what that would look like. We think we do. We think it might have something to do with the sphere of politics or education or some kind of popular image or sway over culture. I don't think so, God. I think it starts at the bottom with you. And as we've moved away from a time in our country where it's good to call yourself a Christian to where now it's bad, would you let us just embrace that? Can we quit trying to change that and just let it be what it is and figure out why you're letting that happen and what you're doing in the midst of that? God, we want to be people who reconcile. We want to be people who reach out, not who build walls and try to protect this thing that we feel is so sensitive. You are stronger than us. You are right and righteous, you are holy, you are good, you are beautiful, you are worthy. Teach us those things. Teach us to exalt you, teach us to meet with you, teach us to sing to you, teach us to pray to you, teach us to be with you, to be as like you as we can be by the power of your Son and your Spirit in us. 
We love you, God. We're trying. We need your help. We need your help, God. And I pray that this church would be a place that has room for people who aren't sure anymore. That this church would be a place where we see love for one another that is so indicative of a miracle and not just us playing nicely. We trust you to do these things, God. We ask because we have faith that you're listening. Even if it feels like you're far, give us the ability to trust and know and, and make much of you in our lives. We, I beg you, God, to do these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.